You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. It's the week of Sunday, August 14th, and our current sermon series is Romans, the Declaration. Paul Patterson shared with us at the Moscow campus this week. As he works through Romans 10 and 11, he reminds us not to let our comfort, systems, or cultural norms become a barrier to our ability to hear the voice of God and live out the gospel. Good morning, Real Life. I hear like cheers and disgust all at the same time. <laughs> I want to I ensure you I'm, I'm okay. Uh, everything's fine. Uh, if you're new with us, by the way, and you have no idea what's going on, uh, we should have got a picture of, of what I looked like last night beforehand. Anyway, uh, I'm Paul. I'm the, high, I'm the uh, youth pastor here at Real Life. Glad to be with you. Um, isn't it funny how something as insignificant and small as hair like when that change happens, like it, it reorient, like our brain goes in shock. Uh, the reactions have been great. Uh, several of you have walked by me several times. And you're probably sitting right now. And you're like, I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, there was uh, Ellie. Ellie Gray was probably one of my favorite ones. She was walking towards me, and she's probably like, uh, she's been walking for a little bit, and she's like three feet away from me. And she's been she's been look, looking at me, and she when she's about three feet away, she goes. And like walks around me. <laughs> it was uh, probably the most disappointing reaction though was my kids. My kids just kind of looked at me and whatever, give me a hug. Like it was like, like no big deal. Anyway, uh, hey, we got some work to do. So we've been in the middle. Are, are we good? Like we're good. I can. I, we can. We can move on. <laughs> we're good. All right, okay. <laughs> no, we're not good? All right, all right. Well, that's, we're going to move on anyway, so I, I, hope, I hope this doesn't distract you too much. Uh, we are in this Romans passage, and we don't have time to set the whole context of Romans, but Paul's in the middle of wrestling with this question. If God's redemptive history is true, if what God has been up to has been trying to redeem people, how do you answer the question, why did Israel reject then the Messiah? How do we grapple with that? How do we make that work with God's love and redemption of the world? Why is it that God's people that he has been incredibly faithful to throughout history and over and over again has redeemed, why is it right now at the pinnacle of God's redemptive work in the world, why, has he, why have they rejected the message and Paul's in the middle of wrestling with this, and so it's important to keep this in context. If you haven't heard the past couple sermons on Romans, make sure you go hit those because uh, that lays the groundwork for today. Paul, last week, ends with the statement, for those who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what Paul's going to do at the beginning of this passage is he's going to break it down to its most simple common denominator. Where along this process have they, ha- has Israel missed it? So he's going to start from calling on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved and start going backwards. And he's going to try to find where did Israel go wrong. And the passage we're going to read is a passage that when I was growing up was often used for like a motivation to evangelize. And like there are several like evangelism trainings that I went to and books that I've read that this passage was used. And that's good and that's fine and you could do that. But it's interesting to remember that this in context is talking about God's people, those who have already heard. So keep that in mind. Let's jump into Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who, of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? So Paul goes from calling, uh, calling to believing, right? Go back. Oh, my brain just totally shut off. Go back. Yeah, there we go. All right, cool. From calling to believing to hearing to preacher to sent. And so he breaks it down and he's asking the question, where did it go wrong? What, where in this process have, has Israel missed it? And then he says this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, this quote from the Old Testament has this idea of a watchman on a city wall. And imagine that you hear an army is coming. And so your city, your nation rallies its troops and your army goes to meet them. You're going to leave a couple people behind. And one of these people you're going to leave behind is the watchman who's going to stand over the city wall and he's going to guard the gates. And as your army goes into the distance, the thoughts that you are wrestling with, like if they don't win, what happens? What happens if in the next week, two weeks, month, we see the army marching over the hills? And so this watchman would be standing on the wall waiting for a messenger to bring some type of news. Has our armies been vanquished or are the enemies defeated? Is our city saved or is our destruction imminent? And imagine what, how, what you would feel day in and day out when you finally see a messenger coming over the hill proclaiming victory and salvation for your city. So he says this, and then he quotes again from Isaiah. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Paul states that there has been a messenger that has come. But the people didn't hear it. It's as if there was no watchman on the wall. It was, it's as if the city just went about their business. As if there was nothing at stake. They just went on with their routines, went on with their comfortable lifestyles, and totally forgot what was going on. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul, in this statement, kind of alludes to what he thinks where it went wrong. That yes, there has been someone yet uh, sent. Yes, they have preached. And yes, the message has been heard. But they didn't obey it. Uh, and the word faith oftentimes, Paul oftentimes will use, this, use it synonymously with obedience. You'll see times where Paul, instead of saying faith, will say obedience. Because in Paul's mind, faith isn't just a trust or an intellectual assent. It's always about the fundamental way you live. So if you have faith in the message of Christ, it changes the entire way you live. It looks like obedience. And, so, and this is where Paul thinks it has gone wrong. The message has been preached, but they, haven't, but they haven't had faith in it. They haven't obeyed it. So Paul's going to be asking these questions, going, kind of going back through, trying to figure out once again where it went wrong. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is Psalm 19. Paul's quoting from this passage that talks about how all of creation declares God's glory. That day in and day out their words go forth. And so he says, even on the, at least on the most basic level, God's glory has been proclaimed through his creation. They at least have that message. Then he goes to Deuteronomy. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And notice he doesn't say yes or no. Or, or no or? Yes or no. He doesn't say either. He just says this. 
From first, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And we'll come back to this. Then he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah so boldly asked to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. Now, this is a common practice in rabbinical circles that we refer to called uh, weaving pearls, where you quote from the law, you quote from the prophets, and you quote from the writings. So Paul quotes from the Psalms, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, and Paul quotes from Isaiah. And he's doing several things all at once here, and it's brilliant. First, uh, when he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, he's referring to the Gentiles, how God's going to pull Gentiles in. But then he quotes from Isaiah, and Isaiah isn't talking about Gentiles in its context. It's actually talking about Israel themselves. How though they at one point didn't seek God, they found him. Though they at one point didn't ask for God, they got him. So the same thing God is doing to the Gentiles is the same thing God did to the Israelites. And the same, this is what God has always been up to. All along, God has wanted the redemption of all people, all kinds, all languages, no matter where they come from. He wants them. And this is what he's been up to the entire time. But for some reason, Israel wasn't willing to have it. And if you've grown up in church, you, you know the reason why. You, you know why they've done this. Did I not read that? We'll read this. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient people and contrary people. Okay. Anyway, that threw me off. I'm so sorry. Uh, God has been up to this all along. So if you've grown up in church, you've known why. Like we've talked about how Israel was so consumed with their rituals and traditions and their, you know, self-righteousness and, you know, keeping, like they had, a, they had rules that guarded the rules. They called it a fence. They, put, they built a fence around Torah to, to guard it. Like they, they had constructed this system and traditions that became the point rather than, what, rather than God. And it's easy for us to look 2,000 years later and, and judge them and to say, yeah, they got it wrong. But truthfully, we still do this today. Like we construct our own worshipful experiences. We have our own traditions, our own communities, our own norms that we, that we all feel this silent pressure to conform to. Uh, we, we, there are things that happen and maybe it's, maybe it's a specific doctrine and maybe the doctrine is true, but we put too much emphasis on that and that becomes the point. Uh, our own unique form of Christianity becomes what we're really about rather than what Jesus is. And if you've been around Aaron a while, whether uh, like a 101 class or the life of Christ, you'll, you've probably heard what he calls the cycle of church history, where there's a movement that becomes all about Jesus. They want, that's all they're about, and they want to bring people to him. And as the movement grows and more people amass, there becomes a need for structure and organization, which is good and it's valid and it's valuable, and it's needed. But as time progresses, the structure and the organization becomes more thick with significance, and we start tying things to it. It becomes Jesus and something else. And as time progresses, the system becomes the point. You need to be part of the system. And as time progresses, people realize this is not right. Something within their gut just knows it's wrong. And so they rebel, they leave, they they give up on it. And eventually someone comes along with a bright idea, maybe we should just be about Jesus. And the system continues. 
This is our story. Not just since Jesus, but even before Jesus. It's our story. This is what God's people has, they've always done. They've gone through cycles. God will come in and he will redeem us. He'll set us back on the path and, and get, once again, give us the controls. And then somewhere along the line, we get off. Here's what's brilliant about Paul, though. Paul knows, Paul knows that his audience knows why Israel wasn't willing to hear. But then he quotes Deuteronomy 32. And Deuteronomy 32 is a rich, thick passage, and we're going to read all of it. Well, not all of the chapter, but we're going to read a huge chunk. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your, your elders and they will tell you. So picture who God's talking to here. He's talking to like a younger person telling them to go ask the previous generation. Because this isn't just an individual thing and it's not just an us thing, it's a generational thing. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion in his, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a hollowing waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, which is ah, so good. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. Sounds great. God's redemption of his people, how he just blesses them. But Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And notice that God goes between this third person them and first person you. Because this is our story. Like the, the, the people of God, this is our story. We get so blessed and we just intake and then eventually we do nothing with it. Instead of it being a, a, a living water, instead of a bubbling stream that pours out, we become a stagnant pond. We grow fat and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With, abom with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. <laughs> you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They made me jealous with, that is, with what is no God. They provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God tells these people, if you're going to go that route, 
I will, I will bring people in and hopefully, hopefully even the jealousy that you feel will draw you back. So as Paul wrestles with this question of what's going on, when he sees the Gentiles coming in and the Israelites going out and he's asking the question why, he looks back at the story of God's people and he sees that this has happened before. Right now it's happened because of their rituals and traditions and routines and their cultural norms and their ideals. But in the past, it has been because of their own comforts. And really, it's the same thing. Because they, because they were so consumed in the blessings of their life that they were unwilling to move from that. And I don't know where you might be on the spectrum. You might be over here with the fabricated worship experiences where you show up Monday morning and you raise your hand or both hands. Maybe you do the Tim Hawkins thing, like carrying a... No? Anyone? Tim Hawkins? Carrying the TV, light bulb... Um, I forget the other ones. There's field goal, uh, something like that. I don't, but you, you create these fabrications. And because you go to church and because you're involved and because you have a Bible study and because you wear the Christian t-shirts and you know all the songs, you, you're in your routine and you feel secure there. You feel comfortable. You have your right doctrine. You have your right people. You, you, you do all of that. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum where you're successful, it's your career, it's your, like, yeah, you believe in Jesus and you go to church, but that's just to check the box off and go through the routine as well. But over here is really where you find your comfort. And it could be sports, your education, your family, your health, your looks, I, I don't know what it might be. But really, no matter what it is, no matter where, no matter where you are on the spectrum, you're on the wrong spectrum. If that's your ideal, if that is what you try to, do, try to fight for, try to preserve, try to keep, is your comfort, you will be unable to hear the voice of God. And if I may, get on the soapbox for a little bit. You ask any youth pastor what the number one thing they compete with in ministry, and it's sports. It's nothing wrong with sports. I want my students in sports. I, I want them there winning people to Christ, bringing the gospel and living what God has called them out to do on the field or on the mat or whatever it might be. But too often what we find, what we see in our students is as, especially once they get into the freshman year and sports start getting serious, we find that their sport becomes their religion. And I don't mean metaphorically. They have their own code of ethic. They have their own rituals, their own traditions. They have their own community, their own identity, their own high calling. They have everything that religion provides. And slowly but surely, they get drifted away into this other gospel. And we see it all the time. And it's not just sports. I mean, I don't want to pick on sports. It could be academics. Like There's a whole host of things. It could just be their social sphere. It, we see it all the time. And it bugs me. It pisses me off when students who grew up in the church don't want to go to youth group because the people there are sketchy. And you laugh. It, and I, it's easy to look at the students and just say they're immature and shake our head and one day they'll get it. They're not getting it now because someone's not teaching them. Someone's not leading them. Someone's not modeling it to them. 
I desperately need students who are mature in Christ, who are passionate about the path that God has called them out to, who come along my students who, for some reason, they've never been to church before, but for some reason, they come Monday nights, and they hang out, and they play on their phone, and they don't get quite get to what this worship, prayer, Jesus thing is, but for some reason, they're there. And I would love if I could have a group of students who come alongside them and say, let me walk with you. Let me show you what this looks like. All right. Uh, back to Romans. So Paul kind of comes to this conclusion. The reason they are not, they, they've heard, but they ha- they've listened, they, but they're not willing to respond. They, they will not accept it because it challenges their own comfort. They've grown so used to their routine that they can't hear anymore. Paul then goes on. I ask then, Romans 10, has God rejected his people? If his people have rejected God, then has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And this kind of alludes back to our discussion from Romans 8 and Romans 9 about predestination. How those whom he foreknew, he predestined. God hasn't given up on them. He hasn't, by no means. And then Paul leans on this story from Elijah. When Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, because he just did this amazing thing, but no one responds. No one follows God because of it. And Elijah assumes he's all alone. That he's the only one. And this is kind of what Paul is feeling. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. We can see how Paul would relate to this. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a revenant chosen by grace. No matter how dark this situation is, no matter how, un, no matter how unimpactful we might feel like we are on society, God will always save. Even when you feel all alone, even when you feel like you're walking this walk, when you feel like you're on the path all by yourself, you're not. And you never are. And we're not just talking about how God is with you. There's always others that are also on the path. Always. And Paul takes hope in this. No trusting in God's redemptive work. Knowing that his sovereignty is at work here. Even if he doesn't know what it's going to look like. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it it was seeking. In Romans 9, Paul uses the same verbiage about Israel, and he says that what they were seeking was a righteousness through the works of the law. And we talked about what that meant. Uh, They were seeking some type of system and structure and moral code that would give them what they wanted. And ultimately, that's exactly what they got. It's a principle in scripture. You will find what you look for. You will get what you ask for. Whatever door you knock on will be opened. And ultimately what Israel was seeking, they got. What they thought they were seeking, they didn't get. Then he says this, the elect obtained it. I was at a funeral yesterday. Uh, my, friend, my friend's son committed suicide over the weekend. Uh, his name was Maji. He was adopted. 
At five, he was orphaned, and then he spent the next roughly 11 years in a refugee camp in Africa before he came to the States. When he came to the States, my friend Keith Harrington, who's a pastor at Rock Arbor in down in the Boise area, him and his family adopted him. And you could imagine that, you could just imagine what Maji went through. You can just imagine the abuse and the, the depression and just everything he went through. One of the many, many things that stood out about the funeral is when Keith talked about his son, he frequently said, Maji was chosen. And he wasn't talking about some like supernatural thing. He was just talking about the practical thing that Keith and his family chose Mazi to be his son, to be part of their family. God hasn't rejected his people just because they've rejected him. The elect are those that trust it, though, those that do come into the family. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And keep in mind what we've talked about in Romans 9. I and mean, we talked about Pharaoh and how he hardened his heart first. And then God finally said, fine, if that's what you're going to do, I'll use that. So he goes on. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And he does this thing again where he, he weaves pearls. But he ends here. He ends with this, you know what? Even in their rejection, God is, God is sovereign and he's going to use it. And hopefully, as he said earlier in this section, through jealousy, maybe they'll come back. Because God is willing to use whatever means to get his people. He's, using, he's willing to do whatever it takes to get his children back home. And even if it means he's willing to use their own improper motives to bring them back, he will do it. And so Paul rests on this idea that God is at work even in their rejection and hopefully through their jealousy. God will bring them back. So we're going to move into our time of communion. Uh, if you're serving it, uh, go ahead and head back. And we're going to go through some implications. They're going to be passing out the elements. Please hold the elements until the end. And we have an open table here. If you want to profess the, Lord, the Lordship of Christ and remember his death, burial, and resurrection, we invite all to partake with us, but we're going to do it as a family, as one. Implication number one. What we do with the gospel and whom we invite to the gospel will reveal our relationship with the gospel. Because remember, the gospel is not just a thing. It's not just a get out of hell free card. It is more than that. It's about a kingdom, about a new way of living, about a new reality that Jesus came to inaugurate. And it affects everything. From the top down and every aspect of life, it infiltrates. And so it should be true with our life as well. So if we do sports, our, the sports isn't the goal. The sports is a means to a goal. Our sports become a way of proclaiming and spreading the kingdom of God wherever we go. And if we do our rituals and our traditions, which aren't wrong in and of themselves, they become a means, not the end. This is why we gather so we can remember this. Another way to say this, if I were to reword this, 
I would say it this way. What we do with the gospel and whom we invite to the gospel will reveal what gospel we believe. I would challenge you, and I challenge myself, for a moment, look at the way you live, the people you interact with and how you interact with them. What type of gospel are you really believing? Are you really living? And it doesn't matter if you're a youth pastor on stage or if this is the first time you've been to church in six months. Evaluate. Don't just assume. Really ask yourself that tough question. Second implication. Our willingness to hear is often muted through our communal norms and comfort. We get so caught in our routines, in, in these ditches, that we can't hear God. And for some of you, you know what this is like because you're going through it right now. And maybe you've been playing the Christian game or maybe you've been living your life out there, going through the routines and going through the motions. And you felt comfortable, but there's something missing. You can't remember the last time you felt God. It might be time to change something. Because as you know, a little change can shock your system. Number three, comfort is a cheap knockoff of peace. Hashtag faux shalom. <laughs> it's our desperate attempt to keep everything safe and controlled. And one, one thing I'm learning and been learning for 31 years, is that this becomes a motivating factor in the way I live. I need to be safe and control what I can. And you threaten me. You challenge that. So of course I'm going to keep some distance. Of course there's going to be some wall, some fake personality I'm going to put up, some type of coping mechanism or some defense mechanism I'm going to create to, to keep me safe and to make sure I can control what I can control. This is not what peace is. And what I've been learning over the past years is God has been trying to break down wall after wall, inch after inch to get to who I really am. And it's dangerous and it's terrifying and it makes me freak the heck out. But it's only been because of this process that I have experienced any type of healing or growth. And I'm excited when God finally breaks through that last wall. And I won't be done that yet because you're going to hurt me. You're going to judge me. You're going to say something. I'm going to take it wrong and I'll start building up walls again. And God, once again, will start chipping away at it. Hopefully I'm preaching to someone in here, not just myself. And this kind of goes into our next implication. When we seek the preservation of our system over the redemption of people, God will buck the system. Whether it's you as an individual and what you do, the systems you've created, the routine that you put yourself into, whether it's us as a people, when we lose this, God is willing to throw the whole thing out. He is. Because it's bigger than real life. It's bigger than our denominations or our church traditions. He is willing to throw the whole thing out if it might mean that he can save more. And I am convinced this is what's happening in the church world in America. 
God is stirring some things up. He is mixing the pot and he is challenging our status quos because the church has grown fat and sleek and stout. And this one, God will work with you or in spite of you, but he will use you. It's, it, it's a fact. Look at Samson, look at Gideon. He will. And truthfully, he wants to use you. But if the, how he uses you is determined by your willingness to let go of your routine and ideals and trust the voice of God. That, that's, that is almost entirely what is going to determine this. Are, are you willing to just let go a little bit, to experience a little bit of uncomfort, to get out of your routine just a little bit, to take a little bit of a risk, we might call it faith, to see what God does with you? And it might be weird, it might be uncomfortable, it might even feel wrong. It might. But if you're willing to trust God and you're willing to go seek and pursue people, to love on them and try to bless them, you're going to feel uncomfort. You're going to feel the chaos of the world. But God invites us to know that we can either live in the four walls of our church when the storm is raging around us and the waves are going up and down and the wind's coming and the rain's hitting us in the face, or we can walk on top of it all. And hear me, like we normally view that, that idea from like a, a, a place of normality. Like we could be in the boat like we normally are, like we're just drifting along, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, or we could walk on the water, which is totally cool. Listen, God calls us to step on the waves in the darkest and most desperate moments of our life. When all chaos is going on and we just want to cower in our boats because it's secure, because at least we find some comfort in them. And God says, you don't have to do that. Come take a walk with me. We in America need to settle down a little bit. We need to chill the freak out. Whatever happens in November, it's going to be okay. It is. I'm just, and trust me, I have my own political opinions. Like, I, could, I can offend you so quick. But that is not who we are. That is not our kingdom. We have a higher king, and when the waves are thrashing, we can be a people of true peace. And we can bring comfort to a nation that does not know it. I just realized I don't have my cup and my bread, so I did it for a service. Um, <laughs> what it might look like for you, what it might look like for you is what you hold in your hand right now. It might look like going to something like the cross, a symbol of death and destruction, of oppression. Thank you. A symbol of a nation that was taking advantage of someone else. Like this utter symbol of evil and disdain. It was a, the cross was a word that you weren't allowed to mention in polite company. And Jesus, instead of kicking Rome's butt, goes to the cross and redeems that symbol. And today we wear it as a sign of something we are proud about, something that we take hope in, a sign of love and forgiveness. And it, it may not happen overnight. 
It might take a few days. It might take 40. It might take a few years. But that one little seed that Jesus planted in that moment of unselfish, unselfishness has changed the world forever. And we have the option of stepping out of the boat and doing the same, of laying our own life down in the midst of everything going around us and believing in a gospel that is bigger than ourselves, that is bigger than America, that is bigger than our sport, our career, our academics, our family, our own comfort. And if we're willing to do that, we'll find a peace that truly surpasses understanding. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And whenever we eat this, we remember him. So let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. When we drink this, we remember the stories that we've come from, the covenant that we have tied ourselves to. Let's remember. Father, I want to thank you for your audacious love. How prodigal you are in loving your children. How you are doing, how you are willing to do whatever it takes and go to whatever means possible to redeem people and to redeem your world. We don't always understand how it's working. But Lord, you call us to trust that you are working. And the people around us that we desperately want to see them come to you. You're already there at work. When we read the headlines, we wonder what the heck is going on in our society. You are at work. When we're sitting at home in that deafening silence of wondering what's going on with our life, just wanting to feel something, you're at work. Help us to trust you in all moments. May we be the type of people who are so crazy that we are willing to step out onto some wild waves and tell some stories that other people would never believe unless they saw it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from Real Life. For more information about our church, our ministries, or upcoming events, find us online at liferotp.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash liferotp. Romans the Declaration will continue next Sunday. Until then, be blessed and have a great week.